Come on. Hello and welcome to Dynamite Nelly. It's the retro game podcast where a couple of old pals get together and talk about a couple of old games. The voice you're hearing just now is myself, Mick Clockerty. Joining me as always, we have Mr. Mick McCormick. How's it going? And unfortunately, Mr. Andy Mack has recently been banged up abroad for stalking Yu Suzuki, the creator of Shenmue. <laughs> so we are we're getting a campaign under the way to get him free. But um, Leo Glaster has very kindly subbed in at the 11th hour and played a fucking possibly shite Mega Drive boxing game for us. It's Mr. Leo Glaster. Good evening. <laughs> and he's brought back the Vincent Price greeting That's and all sorts. My, my signature spooky good evening, yeah. I'm, I'm never letting it go. <laughs> Don't worry, Andy's got Phoenix Wright on his case. He'll be out in no time. Aye. Andy will walk this. I've got no, I've got no illusions. And, it, um, and he's definitely not training the Maoists in the jungle. I should reiterate that. <laughs> I, I keep making that joke, right? What, what the fuck are we going to teach Maoists in the jungle? Sonic 2? <laughs> <laughs> But aye, well, we've got something of a a regular old Mince and Totties episode for you today, listener, as we would like to call them. So we're just going to cover three games that we've swapped, and Leo is basically your Andy Mac stand-in. But first of all, what's been happening, what he's been up to, what he's been playing? So I treated myself to a new SD card from a Steam Deck to fit a whole load of ROMs on it, um, and... I had this kind of grand plan of like basically downloading the entire library of the PlayStation and Xbox and PS2 and GameCube mm. um, and then transferring it onto the thing. Um, the further I get into this mission, the, the more I realise that it wasn't actually all going to fit. So I've got loads and loads of pure shite junk PS1 games. <laughs> and then like I started being more discriminating with my, uh, my later console generation ones. Um, and that took like a, a fortnight to actually get all downloaded and unpacked and stuff. But um, once it, once it was sorted, I just did a, a few random things. My wee niece was staying over last weekend, and I, she was kind of wanting to play something, and was having a wee look through the library for something she could have a go of. And I settled on Ratchet and Clank on the PS2. Ah, and then aye. after she gave that a go for ten minutes, I basically just started playing it and I was playing it for a couple of days. <laughs> I've kind of <laughs> forgotten how much I enjoyed those weekends. It's a it's a, cl- a, a a classic of the PS2 exclusive platformers. I never actually got to play it. I think I had a demo of it once years ago, but I was a Jack and Daxter person. Oh Jack and Daxter was great as well. They're similar, I guess Ratchet and Clank's more about the gunplay. You keep uh, you unlock sort of um all these kind of crazy fantastical weaponry and kind of all sorts of guns and that that are pretty satisfying to use. It's also got one of my favourite collectibles in a game. Like, your currency is these, like, nuts and bolts that fall out of enemies when you attack them. Mm. And it's the first time I remember, like, seeing just hundreds of, like, 3D physics objects on screen at any one time. So these things just, are, like, bouncing around everywhere and they're, they're dead satisfying to choose. Do they kind of fly into you a little bit when you get close to them and make yeah, them noise? That's, there's nothing more satisfying than that. <laughs> hundreds of wee bits just flying at your, at your guy and making a noise as you collect them. That's the Lego games for me all over, man. Oh, See definitely. when you've destroyed hundreds of things and all these wee particles, bits of Lego fly into you. Can't beat it. Peak game design. <laughs> yeah, they're quite good. They're, they're 
kind of a sense of humour as well. I remember some of the later games having funny titles like Ratchet and Clank up your arse and all and stuff like that. <laughs> they're decent wee platformers and there's a bit of a very slight kind of Metroidvania sort of thing to it where you're, you're landed on a planet and you can go in a couple of different directions through the level and you might find like a, a new quest or an, an upgrade or something that you can take back and unlock bits and other levels and that. So a wee bit of depth to it as well, but just a pretty easy play to be honest. I'm one of your kind of switch your brain off games. I sometimes I feel like I'm a bit above these sort of games, and then I realise that actually that's just what you need sometimes. Aye, well, I, I've never tried it, so I mean, if you're looking for picks next year, could they worse than getting Ratchet and Clank on? I think PS2 games are allowed. That's basically fucking retro these days, anyway, isn't it? We've had a handful of them. Yeah, it's definitely it's definitely retro. I reckon. Uh, Leo, you been up to much yourself? Uh, well, I've been mostly playing Wii games on my Panic Playdate, which is a, a weird little niche handheld console that came out last year. The Wii Crank Machine. Yeah, that's what I was about to say, yeah, that's what I know about it. You're it's cranking got, away on it. It's got a crank on it, yeah. So I've just been <laughs> cranking away on my, on my box. <laughs> I found out about it uh, when it was uh, they were still open for pre-orders, and I was quite excited by the idea of it, just because I got quite romantic kind of interested in the idea of just a new console coming out in the 2020s that wasn't Aye. a Sega or Nintendo or Microsoft thing and wasn't an emulator but it was like a new kind of dedicated indie console. Aye, it seems to be sold as almost like an ethos like the microcomputers, like a machine for hobbyists, like make your own games, play other people's games like... Exactly, I think that was the other thing I really liked about it is it's geared so much towards yeah, people making their own games, they released the dev kit for free more than a year before the console came out and it's designed for to be super duper easy for loading games onto it doesn't have like SD slots or anything it's just you make an account with the website and then you can upload games to your account and then just download them straight onto the console. That's pretty cool. Aye. And it's a tiny wee thing. It fits in the palm of your hand almost. It's black and white screen. It's almost like an e-reader screen. It's not backlit, so you have to play it in the in some light. But well, Andy's not here, so you'll you'll not have to listen to a f- five-minute rant about that. <laughs> and <laughs> like it means you can also pull. use it as a, a black mirror in another dimension. <laughs> well, exactly. <laughs> Uh, but it's des- it was designed by Panic, who are the publishers of games like Firewatch and Untitled Goose Game, and manufactured by Teenage Engineering, who mostly make synthesizers. Oh, they've got some awesome stuff. Very, very expensive. Um, but one of my friends has got the uh, Teenage Engineering OP1 that he makes a load of amazing music on. Shout out to the own person on YouTube if you want to check out <laughs> some of his stuff. No, Leo, given that you get the dev kit, have you fucked about? Have you made anything yourself? Yes. So I was I was messing around with it since way before I actually got the console, and I had a few sort of half made things that I never really had the uh, impetus to properly finish. I couldn't quite decide what I was doing about it. And on a whim, just before the start of October, I decided I saw an advert for a, a game jam for the playdate specifically, and I signed up for it and spent the month of October making the my first kind of finished game. What's the game? So you finished one? Yes, so I've, I, my, my game's called Vacuum. It's a, basically an interactive fiction game about being trapped in a tiny escape pod in space and somebody is chatting to you through the intercom and you just sort of work out what's who you are and what's going on and why you're there. 
through the answers that you pick to the questions that you get asked. Dead quick, it takes about two minutes to play through, but there's a bunch of different endings that you can get, and depending on which options you pick, the, the story itself actually changes, so that Aye. What, what's going on and the context of things changes depending on cool. how, you, how you go through it. I love a wee nugget of interactive fiction. Am I able to play this without a cranky machine? Yes, you are. Um, if you go to the Playdate website, which is play.date forward slash dev, you can download the dev kit. And you don't need to fuck around with anything else in the dev kit, but the dev kit comes with an emulator for the Playdate. So you Magic. Can, you can download the game from itch.io forward slash grey star studio g-r-a-y star studio dot itch.io right perfect and the game vacuum vacuum yeah Aye. Cool. i'll be checking that out i'll be checking it out as well and i would encourage yourselves to as well listeners but yeah intro bump aside well done leo on finishing the game jam uh, i look i look forward to trying that out i let's get into our games for this week so let's imagine for a second well, actually, I'll just I'll just lift the curtain, right? Leo has has basically got the gen. He's got a bit of a a, a pre written statement for Andy Mac. So, uh, Leo brackets Andy. Why did you pick Jet Set Radio Future for Mister McCormick? Uh, yeah, I will. I'll tell you just off the top of my head from the truth of my heart <laughs> and it is just that the xbox is a favorite of mine as it's the sequel to the dreamcast in spirit jet set radio was one of the big hitters for the dreamcast and this was a sequel that fell under the radar due to the dreamcast failing and sega becoming a publisher it's one of a few sega games from that time that fell under the radar unfairly there we go yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's my personal feelings about it. Uh, anyway, okay, Leo, you're always going on about Sega. <laughs> I love, I love Sega, man. Everyone Was knows that you game on the Xbox. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, as Andy said, um, as sure you are probably all aware of, but now the Dreamcast was a bit of a disaster for Sega. They nearly completely failed as a company due to the, the, the sales of the Dreamcast, but they managed to pivot and get out of the hardware market and start uh, developing games for the other consoles of, of the, that generation at the time. They weren't too picky. They kind of split their library among the various consoles of that generation. So you had a couple of Sonic games that came out on the PS2, pretty shite ones, to be perfectly honest, um, and the GameCube. But they seemed to reserve a lot of their good stuff for the Xbox, which is maybe an unusual choice because I don't think the Xbox was particularly popular in Japan. And a lot of the games they put out seemed like they'd be quite focused towards the Japanese market. Um, so I don't really know what the thinking was behind that. We've talked about it before about how they were going to bring out this, was it a Sega Series X or something like that? That um, Xbox has been trying to get a bit of a foothold in Japan but has never, re- I think it's still been seen as a thing for Westerners and therefore like less good. So perhaps Xbox incentivized Sega to work with them more to try and get more into that market. Yeah, maybe they had kind of favourable publishing terms or something with them or maybe they gave them a bit of a bonus before the games were released. Kind of like what uh, Epic was doing, like to, to court indie developers out away from Steam. Aye. Maybe it was kind of favourable terms that sort of things but i there was um there was a few kind of decent games put out on the xbox by sega in that era obviously shemmy u2 was ported for the dreamcast and um, panzer dragoon orta which i was having a week go of also on the steam deck that's pretty cool and this one jet set radio future which um they were all made by this company called smile bit or well, it's not a company but it's like one of the 
development teams uh, from Sega. Aye. They put out a load of these games. Um, Sega GT as well. Um, Gun Valkyrie, which is pretty well regarded as well on the Xbox. And they've they've since kind of pivoted towards being a, like a sports team. They make like the majority of the sports games for Sega these days. But yeah, Jet Set Radio Future, sequel to Jet Set Radio on the Dreamcast, which I've only really played for five minutes, but I think it's pretty much the same idea as this. So Jet Set Radio Future takes place in the future, of course, of a city called Tokyoto, which is an amalgamation of Tokyo and Kyoto. Um, and it's been taken over by a, a kind of new police chief who really hates graffiti. And he's sort of been implemented a really authoritarian war against uh, graffiti in order to clean up the city. So you plays these plays these team of rebel graffiti artists um, and also rollerbladers because you know extreme sports two thousands etc. What's cooler than doing an extreme sport? We're doing two extreme sports at once. Um, so <laughs> you are given orders over this pirate radio station called Jetset Radio. Um, and told to kind of take back the city for these authoritarian uh, polis and also just other graffiti gangs. The game kind of focuses first on these rival gangs, but as it goes on, you kind of realise that you've got a common enemy uh, in the polis. game also quite amusingly starts off with a little warning screen. Warning, maybe too radical for you fucking squares. This is a game about rebellion. <laughs> <laughs> graffiti is art. However, graffiti is an act of vandalism, is a crime. Every state and province has vandalism laws that apply to graffiti, and local entities such as cities and counties have anti-graffiti ordinances. Violation of these laws can result in a fine, probation, or a jail sentence. Sega does not condone the real-life act of vandalism in any form. To which I say, Sega are being cowards here, aren't they? Aye. <laughs> what would what would Banksy think? This is why they went down the tubes. <laughs> Conformity. <laughs> they should at least put a winky face at the end. <laughs> I know. But um, it puts a bit of a damper on your kind of anti-authoritarian game when the first uh, thing you see when you turn it on is, please don't break the law. It's <laughs> it's very much like diet anti-authoritarianism. It's like the kind of authoritarian anti-authoritarianism you'd get in a soft drink advert, you know, like, yeah, man, we don't care about your rules. We are going to drink Pepsi Max or like that that film Hackers from the 90s or something Aye. says absolutely nothing, but there's just this vague rebellion and they're going to beat it by typing dead fast on keyboards, I guess. But this is that, but with graffiti. Now, d- does it retain... I've played the Dreamcast one, right? And... Not not in great depth, mind you, but I've had a shot at it and I've thought, I get this, this is good crack, I can see why it's beloved for people. You've got this beautiful sort of cell-shaded look about it. Um, you're skating about, painting graffiti over everything. Soundtrack was quite distinctive as well. Is it kind of mere of the same in that respect? Aye, you've kind of got all, all of that really. Um, I'm struggling to really know what the difference is apart from maybe just like mere, mere of what you got on the Dreamcast. And Aye. you can understand why they want to maybe have a second crack at this because as I said, the Dreamcast didn't sell a lot and they had a pretty solid idea, but just on a console that people maybe didn't care too much about. Um, so yeah, I think they just had another crack at it basically. They uh, Yeah, I think it, it is, they, they kind of re change some of the design elements so they kind of updated what Tokyoto looked like a bit and the guy that did most of the music kind of went back and re redid all the tunes so it's it's the same tunes but he kind of remixed them again to to make them a bit more 
what he felt was kind of updated and, and sort of true to the time. Right, yeah, so it was just a kind of second crack at the same idea then. Yeah. So the basic gameplay of this, I could describe it in one sentence as a mere chill Tony Hawk's. Uh, that kind of tells you most of what you need to know about this game. So you start off in a wee hub world, um, you skate around on your rollerblades to get to different areas, and then for each area um, there is a sort of challenge that you have to perform. There's a couple of things you have to do to kind of complete uh, quote unquote each area so you get there and the the rival graffiti gang usually uh, a group of guys called Poison Jam they've put their tags and that all over the this area of the city so you'll be roller skating around trying to find these tags um, and then you can hold in the trigger button to paint over them with your graffiti and you're just kind of exploring the level trying to find these things you're picking up spray cans which you can, uh, which is kind of your ammo in that game. Um, you're roller skating around and doing tricks and stuff like that, and doing doing grinds, which is your kind of signature move in this, which you're all very familiar with. If you've heard Andy talking a load of nonsense about soap shoes, yes, um, <laughs> yeah, jumping on rails, uh, much like you would in Tony Hawk's, and kind of balancing um, along a a pole um, and going really fast. And in this, it's kind of even more sort of crazy um, and also unsatisfying because you sort of defy the laws of physics when you're Aye. grinding you can grind like horizontally up like electricity poles and along power lines and stuff like that um, and that's kind of key to exploring these levels and kind of getting to different parts of the, the, the area as well when you when you paint over graffiti does it is this the game it, it might not be this game it might be like a rock star game or something I've got in my head but do you do you have to move the analog stick around in a certain pattern to like simulate like can control? No, I'm not sure what, what that one is. That's maybe that's Mark Echo's getting up. Which is one, <laughs> of the, one of the funniest Castlevania intros. Um, <laughs> <laughs> is it getting up? Stop <laughs> getting up. Um, yeah, no. In this one, you really you just have to ride past it and hold in the button. Um, you might need a couple of passes at it if you don't kind of hug the wall properly, but. Yeah, you're kind of doing that, and the reason I say it's more chilled than Tony Hawk's is there's no time limit on the levels, and which there actually was in Jetset Radio, but they, they chucked that out. There's no time Aye. limit. You can explore at your own leisure, and you also don't bail in the same way that you would in Tony Hawk. If you, like, flub a trick, or if you don't land properly, you fall and hurt yourself. Um, that doesn't happen in this, so it's more about the kind of just the joy and the freedom of movement. You do have Aye. a health bar, which happens, which um, is affected if you get hit by a car, or if you get in a fight with the police, and that can happen sometimes as well. There's we set pieces in each level, um, which kind of break things up. But it's nothing as stressful as like a skateboarding competition. You know, it's just fighting a fascist government to ultimately bring it down and win freedom back for everybody. Just a Aye. nice chill, <laughs> chill times. Just a, yeah, just a nice, just a nice fun time. <laughs> do, do, does doing the tricks is it just for fun or does it is there kind of because your objective most of the time is is to do with tagging isn't it rather than like scoring points but do, do, do the tricks kind of do anything for you or is it just because it's cool yeah so i was a bit confused at this at, at first i was wondering why they were even in there because initially it doesn't seem like there's any point to them it looks cool for sure um when you are doing various tricks as you're grinding you can kind of control your speed which can be helpful at some points but when you achieve the kind of main goal of the level, which is usually spray everything in the level, um, fight a few polis, get in a race. Once that's finished, you can go on to the next stage. But there's also additional objectives. You can That level's always open to you to do the additional objectives. 
and that's when you can start doing things like get a certain combo uh, or do so many tricks in one run that sort of thing those are those kind of objectives so it's one of these games I quite like this when you have kind of a couple of levels of like mastery of the game where you Aye. can breeze through it but there's also like additional challenges to kind of test yourself if, if you want to mm. uh, but they're not required and those can kind of unlock stuff like um, you can unlock these tapes which give you new tunes which are always cool because the tunes are great and new skaters and stuff like that as well did you have a particular like wee guy you played as yeah so i've been going somebody called gum who's a lassie and she's got these two uh, big earphones on quite a high acceleration sort of character high speed and um, which is always useful in these sort of games i never found the other sort of um abilities you can choose like they didn't seem particularly helpful like oh this person can graffiti faster or this person can break more didn't Aye. seem particularly interesting to me but from playing this game for a good few hours I've only unlocked a couple of these characters so you get a few through the story but most of them you're just kind of having to do additional objectives and stuff to unlock them um, and there's, there's hundreds of characters um, so that's quite satisfying as well you mentioned the art style so this game is one of the pioneering games of something called cell shading which is a a kind of cartoony or comic book sort of look. It's a way to kind of, through programming, make a 3D rendered game look 2D almost, a look cartoony. I think the first time I remember being aware of it was seeing a trailer for Wind Waker and I thought it looked class. I thought, well, this is, you know, like a living cartoon and then a lot of people really didn't like it for some reason yeah a lot of people didn't know. like the link design but it, it's I, I like cell shading as a style it's quite it, it it doesn't age the same way that a lot of other exactly, graphics yeah. of that era do like games like sly cooper and um 13 i remember 13 yeah that which they remade apparently was a huge tragedy and and went horribly <laughs> but uh, the original 13 i remember looking really cool and and yeah a lot of games like that just even if they look dated ish the, it never looks quite as embarrassing as some of the <laughs> other kind of polygonal graphics. But cell shading in particular, what it is, if, if you're not familiar, uh, it's a, if you imagine like, say something spherical in a 3D game, like a Fitbit or something, if you've got like a, a light shining on it for a certain direction, you, you imagine that the bit where the light is touching it is lit up, is bright, and then it gradually, as you get further away from the light source, the colour will get darker and then eventually just turn to shadow and black. So what cell shading does is instead of having this gradual change from dark to light, it kind of clamps it down to like maybe three colours. So you have like a highlight, mid-tone and a shadow. And that makes things look a lot more like they would if you were uh, drawing a comic, for example, where like the shadows are often sort of just inked in with uh, black ink um, and Aye. the colours come on top of that. Like, um, Sin, Sin City is, like, the movie example of this, kind of. Yeah, yeah, a modern, absolutely. A modern video game, kind of, it's not it's not exactly the same style, but the Telltale games yes. are kind of leaning into a similar sort of idea. Wolf, with... Wolf Among Us or whatever, had yeah. a, a, it looked kind of like it was cell shading. It's often paired with a kind of outline as well, like a black outline, which kind of further makes it look like a comic or a cartoon. When yeah. they didn't do that, um, but the other games we're talking about, like 13, it does... And it kind of, as well, just gives you a, a bit of room for manoeuvre with your sort of uh, art style as well. Like there's, there's different variations on it, how how much kind of light and shadow you get and what sort of colours they use in that. Um, but this game, one of the first kind of really good examples of it, and I think it still kind of holds up really well. 
the whole aesthetic of it together is probably the, the strongest thing about it. The, the sort of visuals combined with the, the sound and the music. So I get this kind of futuristic sort of hip-hop but through a Japanese lens sort of feel through it which is yeah. quite distinctive. The music as Leo was saying was written by a guy called Hideki Naganuma uh, who works for Sega and he's highly influenced by hip-hop breakbeat and that sort of thing. The one song I thought could fit in to this soundtrack um, when they bother at all would be Fat Boy Slim, Weapon of Choice. <laughs> like a lot of the songs kind of sound a bit like that, kind of scratching and sampling sort of hip-hop beats in that. Um, but yeah, there's some really good tunes. Um, the first Jet Set Radio had a song in it called Let Mom Sleep, which is my favourite song in the soundtrack. And it samples, of all things, an old episode of Coronation Street mm-hmm. in the 1950s. Oh, right, Mick, you're going to need to teach me how to drop something in because we can't know provide an example of this. <laughs> yeah, I'll do that. Aye, so this is this is um let mum sleep. <laughs> Get One of these producers, kind of like the the bomb squad for Public Enemy, that are known for like finding old records and sampling just weird bits and bobs and um, to make their tunes. Um, but yeah, the tunes are great. The, the, the his his kind of method of making tunes has got him into slightly hot water as well. He made uh, the soundtrack for the Sonic Rush games. And um, if you played that, and that kind of mixture of like his sort of hip hop style with sort of classic Sonic style tunes as well, just works really well. What were they mobile games? No, uh, DS. Right. But there's a song where uh, it's about Shadow the Hedgehog, and um, there's a sample of somebody saying, too black, too strong, which is Malcolm X. (laughs) 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 Which, I mean, given the context of the game, that's kind of not on, is it? I don't know. I think when Malcolm X died, he he would have... Are you asking me would Malcolm X have been proud of Shadow the Hedgehog? My answer to you is yes. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, you Naganuma. He's also very funny on Twitter. Um, I don't know if he posts so much very very often, but um, try and look up some of his stuff online. He produced all, all the tunes for the first game. Um, this one expands upon it with new tunes from him. Um, other bands as well, which have a kind of similar kind of idiosyncratic Japanese style. And like other producers remixing his songs as well. Aye. So um, our favourite Richard Jacks um, from of Sonic R fame, um, he remixes a few of the tunes on there as well. Nothing quite reaches the heights of Can You Feel the Sunshine, um, but it's always good to see him getting a run out as well. They should have got your man fucking Naganuma to do um, Cool Z and Shenmue. Nobody's walking about <laughs> with that boombox and it doesn't sound like rap music. It's Somebody really fucking weird. Somebody actually listened to rap music before, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Trick. But yeah, it's a, it's a cool time. It's, um, as I say, 
quite chilled out, just exploring these levels, grinding about, and finding finding new places and that. Um, it's fun to kind of explore a wee bit. I would say that there is maybe a little bit of the Knuckles in Sonic Adventure 2 in some of the levels where you're really just wondering how the fuck did I go over there? Um, how the fuck have I missed this? Aye. <laughs> the, the map isn't that great. Um, there's a few moments of frustration. There's one the level I'm on just now is called Rokaku Guy Hills, which is like this kind of old forgotten part of Tokyo. It's kind of like a, a slum. Well, it's kind of like the, you know, like the barrios in, um, in Brazil. Aye. There's just like kind of all these buildings like stacked on top of each other and that's quite a vertical level with various sections where you've got to grind to, to get higher and higher up the structure um, which is a cool concept but can be a bit of a struggle to navigate especially when you're falling down at the bottom and having to grind back up again can our xbox heed listeners get this on like game pass or can you pay and download it or is there an easy way to get this so i believe that the first one is available on steam but yeah, I'm not actually sure if it's um if it's available on it anywhere uh, after the Xbox, sadly. So you had to get a wee bit creative to play this one. Well, it's easy enough to emulate the Xbox Aye. um on on the Steam Deck and kind of modern consoles and that it, it's ran it ran no bother. But uh, if you're if you're a Sega head or if you just like hip hop and the idea of this sort of cool graffiti influence world um seems appealing to you, then I would check it out. It's quite a fun time. If you're interested nice in it as well, I. I ended up finding and watching a documentary about it on YouTube oh, wow. today, which is called Masterpieces Jet Set Radio Future Full Documentary by somebody called K Is They. And if you're interested particularly in the music and the sort of the history behind it, it goes really quite in depth into that particular uh, kind of Japanese hip hop subculture in quite an interesting way. Uh, yeah, we'll check that out for sure. But I that... Um takes us on to our next game of the episode which is tough man contest for the sega mega drive slash sega 32x the reason i picked this game for andy is because he's a boxing fan and he's just got this weird thing about Butterbean. He likes him. I've heard him reference Butterbean before bring him up in conversation <laughs> and stuff like that and also the the fact that he seems to be stuck on Mike Tyson and Punch It and the the connection there kind of made me go, well, do you know there's a Butterbean fucking game as well for, <laughs> trying to wean for him Sega? Off. <laughs> yeah. So I thought this was a, a good thing for Andy to play. Luckily, Leo is also a boxing fan and, against the odds, a weird fucking Butterbean guy. So we, we've got we've got quite lucky here. I just like the idea that it's folk at Sega going, oh, fuck, Nintendo, I'll get Mike Tyson quick. Who the fuck can you get? <laughs> just, like, going, going down the list. <laughs> like... I mean, Butterbean's aged better, to be honest. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, Leo, how did you get on with it? Yeah, so I don't know if it's just because the the neddy format and it's been quite a long time since i've done a kind of bread and butter episode of getting a game that you wouldn't otherwise have played playing it for a limited period of time and then getting to chat to your pals about it i don't know if that's added to the experience of it just because that's novel for me but i had an absolute blast with this (laughs) i had a really good time (laughs) so yeah tough man contest is a game for the mega drive from 1995 um, it also came out on the 32X, but it basically just had a few graphics 
upgrades and nothing else really changed so this is this is late mega drive there's like yeah. playstations kicking about at this point really yeah exactly this is this is the end of the lifespan it is as you said it's a boxing game based on an american amateur boxing promotion called tough man which was founded in 1979 in michigan and it's still going as it turns out which oh. one of the mo- most famous competitors from it is eric butterbean esh who you may know from the Jackass movie? Yes, so, like that—that that is, I am entirely sure. Like the only reason I know who he is, or like the <laughs> the main reason I know who he is. Yeah, uh, it's the same for me. I, I I have since found out other things about him. He did quite well in the Japanese Pride Fighting Championship, mixed martial arts for a little while. Ah, among as well as as professional boxing. But some other fairly famous people did Tough Man contests. Ken Shamrock ah. and. I know Mr. T did one. Mr. T, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm amazed he didn't get his own game about it, to be honest. Tough Man Contest was, through my limited understanding, right, was basically like a barely legislated boxing competition where I think the only criteria for entry was having less than five professional fights. Yes. Hunters of cunts that had never had a professional fight just signed up in this. The basically local hard men could go down, <laughs> pass a physical check, and then they would be given boxing gloves, go into a ring with their beer guts, their fucking tree trunk arms, and leather shite at each other. And for a while, this was also televised. Yes. <laughs> Whereas uh, nowadays, would... all you need to do is have like multiple millions of followers on YouTube, and then they they let you be a professional. Yeah, well, yeah, they'll pay you enormous yeah. amounts of money for it. But yes, yeah, so somebody, somebody in uh, yeah, in the end of the seventies had an idea that. <laughs> yeah, all these hard guys who claimed drunkenly that they would be able to batter anybody. Somebody thought, here, I can make some money off this. Yeah, um, that's a 1970s cocaine-fueled idea. <laughs> there is a movie about it starring Den- Dennis Quaid as well, I discovered. Um, yes, uh, title, Tough Enough or something? Tough Enough, I believe, is the, is the title for, of it, yeah. For the early 80s? Yes, which I have not watched. Um but uh, but there it is. There, so it's, it's... But it's it seems to have made a bit of an effort to promote themselves in media such as films and uh, Sega games. <laughs> yeah. Well, I wonder whether this game came out because so there were was more than one death um, directly associated <laughs> with Tough Man contests, <laughs> and there were it was eventually it nearly got shut down, but then they were allowed to continue on the proviso that all of their matches were had to be sanctioned by whichever Ugh. boxing um you know game's gone <laughs> yeah exactly the spirit's lost <laughs> but i do not know whether this game came out before or after that legislative change it came out well after i think butterman Butter, butterman <laughs> i it came out well after um butterbean had been <laughs> had been involved with tough tough man um contest uh i I think that was his initial (laughs) rise to prominence and his kind of cult hero status was a contest (laughs) was was fighting was fighting in the tough (laughs) Um, (laughs) by the time he was putting his name on this no i think he'd kind of moved past it i think it was he was a professional at this point i believe aye but yes, yeah, so the, the game was designed. This is just this isn't that interesting, but I thought it was it was fun to mention because it says it on the front sort of title screen of the game. Designed by a man called Michael Rubinelli, who later went on to quite high-powered executive positions at Capcom and Disney, 
um, huh. and uh, most recently became the CEO of a, an esports company called Esports Mogul, but also designed Stuffman Contest for the Mega Drive. Go start somewhere. Exactly. Yeah, it's so. It's the simplest way to describe Tough Man Contest is that it's like a Punch-Out clone in the sense that your boxer, the camera is behind your boxer and your boxer is like a bright green outline with boxing yeah. gloves on. You've got you've got the Super Punch-Out wireframe man and the other boxer is directly in front of you. And it, yeah, it, it's got the same, ca- it, it, looks, it looks like it's just going to be Super Punch-Out. Yeah. Are you fighting... Uh, real boxers from the Tough Man contest or cartoon characters or just real people that are kind of like cartoon characters in terms of their personality so you are fighting I'm going to pick the third option real people who are cartoon characters in the sense (laughs) that or rather realistic cartoon characters I'm pretty sure they're not real I don't think Rigo Suave is a real person (laughs) no yeah and and the fact that there's like the Asian guys have names like Sushi Mitsubishi and things like that. Well, it's like it's it's punch out stuff. Yes, exactly. The Japanese uh, boxer's name is actually Hiro Sokotomi, which ah. I I couldn't decide if that pun was was disastrously laboured or actually genius. <laughs> but uh, it's weird. It's weirdly inconsistent with the puns as well. There's really only two or three puns scattered around what is a surprisingly large roster, which is probably the first difference that you notice if you're used to playing super punch out when you get into tough man contest you don't have your kind of little mac everyman hero boxer that you're playing as you get to pick to play as any of the boxers in the game besides butterbean i'm gonna tell on myself here i was flicking through them and i was like yeah have they got anybody from my oh there we go tk o'reilly i'll be him (laughs) but you pointed out to me that the boxers all have little blurbs, and for the bold Mr. O'Reilly, the Irishman, um, it says that he loves tarmacking. That's what he does. His job is tarmacking your driveway, <laughs> which is like a fucking racist, like Irishman joke from like the seventies or something. Yeah, like that. It, it mentions what all of their day jobs is to, I guess, to kind of drive home the idea that none of these men are professional boxers. Aye. And uh, yeah, it gives you a little a little bio. It's it's interesting the way the game's set up because it's divided into regions. So you compete in a regional tough man contest, and you pick your regions, which are either um, you've got North America, which is the U.S. and Canada, South and Central America, Europe in the Middle East, and Asia and Australia are the four regions. And so the way that the game is structured, you pick a region, you pick one of the boxes from that region. And then you fight all of the other boxers from that region in a, a ladder, which is happens in a random order. And then once you win the regional championships, then you go to the world championships where you fight the champion from each other region. And then Butterbean at the end. One thing I thought was really cool about it is that during your fight, the fights are divided into three one-minute rounds. So they're all fairly quick. And... During the gaps between rounds, you can check the fight statistics and get updates on other fights that are happening in other regions. So you can keep track of which fighters are climbing the ladder and who's likely to be your opponents when you're in the World Championships, which I thought was quite I fun. liked that you could go to your corner guy mm-hmm. for advice. He gives you tips, and, yeah. Yeah, but, and also, I don't want to shit on a great man, right? But see Doc Lewis from punch It. The corner man and tough man contest is actually infinitely more useful. Considerably he, better, yeah. Yeah, he, he gives you, like, he'll say, um, 
at the moment you're only landing right jabs change it up a wee bit you've got to move more or something like he he gives you a bit of actual analysis not just dodge his dragon attack or something <laughs> yeah. like no he's, he does he, and yeah it changes I've, I've played quite a bit of it by now and he, he does change up what he's doing yeah he tells you which of your techniques are landing if you've been focusing on your opponents hitting them in the head a lot he'll tell you that they're going to be a bit head shy and you should um work the body Aye. i don't know if that's true or not I, I haven't played quite enough of it yet to work out how the opponent ai resp- it definitely does respond to you to some extent but i haven't worked out if the corner man is you described this game as quite reactive yes when we were talking about it on messages yeah I, I, so that's how it felt certainly to begin with when i was expecting it to be kind of punch out e where it, that's very much about kind of learning patterns and recognizing the telegraphs and Aye. every opponent has like a particular set of moves that they use and you just sort of learn how to time the dodge encounter and dodge encounter. Use your use your special punch when the gem in this guy's turban lights up and you can spark him out like <laughs> that's, that's <laughs> exactly. Like... Whereas the in Tough Man contest the boxes are much less kind of distinct in the sense that they don't have those sort of weak points or like unique behaviours. You've got your five punches, you've got jabs left and right to the body and head, hooks left and right to the body and head, and an uppercut, and then a set of special moves, which I'll talk about a bit more in a minute. And everybody's got that, so and you can sway left and right and duck and block low and high. So there's quite a lot going on in terms of your moves. And so when you're fighting, you have to kind of judge what your opponent's doing and they don't have these big kind of telegraphs where like the glove will flash or something or they do a big kind of pullback is you you do have to respond quite quickly which the game is not great for aye the controls are not the most responsive thing in the world so it can be it can be quite tricky i did notice the more i played the more i realized that the enemy ai does have patterns and it does like I, there was the fight i'm stuck on at the moment that which is the second fight of the world championships the first six moves that the guy does against me is always the same so i I have actually started to learn the pattern for how to avoid it and and counter it when you pick your guy right because as we were saying super punch you you are little mac right and little mac can do what little mac can do he's got his stuff and this you can you know pick fair roster they've got like special moves you can do special punches is this right yeah, so there's a there's actually quite a long list of what they call power punches, which is just special Aye. moves. So yeah, each character has three that are sort of theirs, but that's only relevant for the enemy ones. When you're when you're fighting against a character, that character will have the moves that are associated with them. But before the fight, you can pick what moves you've got, so you can pick any three you want. Ah, my personal favourites are the Popeye punch which is where you like roll your fists over each other and do like lots of very quick punches to the face in quite a sort of cartoony way. Aye. Windmill wind-up, which is you do a really big wind-up with your arm and then a big uppercut, which I particularly like because it's the move that they do. Do you remember in The Simpsons where Bart and Homer play the boxing game? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and Bart's always beating Homer and then Homer goes to the arcade in the Quickie Mart and learns how to beat him. Yeah, for, for a mere innocent time where you could show a grown man hanging about in an arcade, yeah, with, with yeah, exactly. somebody coming over and saying, "What you doing here? Which one's your kid?" Like, yeah, and deals with kind of quite quite hefty themes about sons defeating fathers and this sort of thing. But in the in that boxing game, they do a, a big windmill wind up punch, and that's kind of the big finisher. And I always love see, seeing that in a boxing game now. 
I used to always think that the games in The Simpsons look pure class for some reason. <laughs> like there's, there's one where Bart's playing a game called Larry the Looter. Yes. And you, yeah. you, you get the electric chair if you get sent to Texas and things like that. I can vaguely remember it. But slight tangent. dinner with Andre Arcade. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I did it with Andre. Slight tangent, but did you ever play Virtual Springfield? Well, the, our, our missing member is a big Virtual Springfield head. I've had a wee has, shot this, at it. But yeah. This would have sparked a kind of 15 minute interlude. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we, 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 we'll not go on about it too long, but, but it's worth mentioning that the one thing about that game that I remember as being quite good is that you can go into the Quickie Mart and it does have a couple of the arcade machines there and you can play them. Amazing. So you can play Larry the Looter, but you can't unfortunately play the boxing game. Ah. But yeah, so the Popeye Punch is fun, the Windmill Wind-Up is fun, and then the Haymaker, which is a big overhand punch to the head, is the cheat move. It's absolutely the way to win because if you can pull off the command for it quickly enough, you can follow up with another one before your opponent has recovered from the first one so you can stun lock them with it to pull these things off is it like a back forward back punch type thing or it's it's a, a an interesting thing so yeah they have button commands kind of fighting game style they're i guess they're a bit mortal combat ish Aye. to compare them to a fighting game but um it's strange so it being the mega drive you've got your three buttons you've got a and c which are your left and right punches yeah and then b is your uppercut but to do the power punches you have to tap b and then input a combination of directions on the d-pad which is the reverse of what you would do in most fighting games and is quite counterintuitive the button input would come at the end usually exactly yeah so it's a bit it's a bit weird and especially i found i find it really tricky because when I'm playing it legally and officially on on the proper original hardware of as course. I am, I've got a funny controller where the buttons and D-pad are completely flat and touch based, Aye. Um, which and have no haptic feedback or response at all. So it's really quite difficult to do like quick, precise button inputs. Um, You'd probably reliably. be a fiend if you got this on a controller. I reckon I, I was. I actually spent some time trying to get my controller working with it this afternoon because I was really <laughs> determined, but I couldn't get it to. I couldn't get it to fly. But yeah, so you've got your special punches, but as I say, they're, they're only associated to the characters in particular when so that you know what they're going to use against you, but you can pick your own, you can customise your own set of special moves. Aye. And then all the characters have stats. They have uh, power, speed, stamina, and toughness. I don't know exactly how relevant those stats are. They don't vary massively. Everyone's is between 80 and 100 for everything, so I'm not quite sure how much difference it makes. Who was your guy? So I picked a character for each region. Ah. I started with the Europe and Middle East, and my guy was Monsieur Victoire, the French guy, because he looks a bit like Jeffrey McWild from Virtua Fighter. <laughs> uh, and it mentions in his bio that he's a fisherman, which Jeffrey also is, so my headcanon for him is that it's Jeffrey from Virtua Fighter moonlighting <laughs> in the Tough Man contests and pretending Aye. to be French for some reason. He's French-Canadian, maybe. Well, yeah. <laughs> Hiro Sokotomi was the Asian guy because I, I, the name made me laugh, as ridiculous Aye. as that is. I quite liked Rigo Suave for Central America. Um, it's going to be has, hard to beat. He has a thing about how he, his face is so beautiful that he's, he'll do anything to protect it, which reminded me a bit of Vega from Street Fighter, but without a mask. Yeah. And then my North American character is Coolio Locke, who I picked initially because he has the best stats. No, let, let me just take a random guess right and, and pull me up if I'm miles after Mark is Coolio Locke perhaps African American 
<laughs> his bio says that he likes to send his opponents on a fantastic voyage. Yes, he is, and he's got he's got uh, dreads, and he his stats are the best in the game as far as I can tell, which is the reason why I initially picked him. Ah, but after a series of devastating losses, I just feel like I've formed a, a bond with him that will last a lifetime, and he's just my character forever now. Trauma bonding. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so Coolio is my guy. I could not finish a fight in this. The best I did was go in the distance in the first fight in the fucking game. <laughs> it's not easy. Like, it's really, really hard. And I do think that emulating it with touchscreen controls and an irregular frame rate definitely made it harder than it would have been otherwise. Aye. It's... I can tell. I think it's pretty ridiculous. Uh, anyway, you really, really, really have to just figure out kind of spammy strategies, I think, with certain power punches and working out patterns to be able to do them over and over again. I think games have getting better over the years. If, if you do need, like, super reflexes to do something, they understand that you really properly need to telegraph what's going to happen, because otherwise you just won't get it. Ah, exactly. This is a game for an era where they expect you to have read the manual. Yes. Like, see, punch it, you can just put it on and you go, right, okay... Dodge, dodge, punch, right, okay, I, I, I figure out his patterns or whatever. This has got more to it than that, there's more controls. I dove into it expecting punch it, super punch it, and as I say, after a couple of tries, managed to go the distance and no get fucking completely sparked out. It's the thinking man's punch it. Which is, uh, which is ironic considering that Eric Gesh wouldn't have considered much of a thinking man. I think it might be the thinking man's punch. I don't think I don't think that's an unfair thing to say, to be honest. It also looks really nice, I should say. Presentation is great. Uh, Butterbean shows up at the title screen looking brilliant and shiny and he smashes his gloves together and says something unintelligible. Butterbean looks like a Mega Drive character in real life. <laughs> it does. It's uncanny, yeah. The way they rendered him is uncanny. Aye. <laughs> Like he's a, f- he wouldn't look at a place in fucking Street Fighter or something like that. He's just totally ridiculous. <laughs> There's a wee bit of synchronicity here, by the way, because the first episode that Leo was on of Dynamite Neddy is called The Thinking Man's, Man's Bob, Bob Marley. Marley the yeah. yeah, because absolutely. we were talking about Bob Charlie for Super Punch It. <laughs> I'm just uh, inexorably drawn towards anything boxing related that happens on Neddy, apparently. <laughs> Which I'm really not that big of a boxing guy, <laughs> but it, it seems to be my my main personality trait when I'm on this. He's been podcast. in one more boxing match than either of us. Well, that's true, I suppose. And, yeah. and most of our listeners, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> I went the distance and lost on points. So I'm basically Rocky. You were robbed. I, I mean, I might have been, I might have been very drunk because they put your fight on last for some reason. <laughs> yeah, I but I, but I know you was robbed. <laughs> But I'm trying to think if I've got anything else to say about this game. It is I, the Thinking Man's Punch Out is not an unreasonable thing to call it. It's it's like Punch Out, but it has more depth. It feels a bit closer to an actual boxing game. Aye. It is very very hard, but see when you do actually pull off often just by mashing buttons. But if you do pull off a good combo where you manage to land a bunch of jabs and hooks and like kind of switch it around to the body and the and the head, it feels really really satisfying. The animations and the sound effects for the punches are really good it's really, there's a real kind of heft to it and a real crunch there's a a bit of a lack of variety with the stages there's just one stage for every region so 
depending on what region you pick, you're fighting in that stage the whole time. Yeah, and then once you win your regional one, you go to Vegas and you just are on the Vegas stage for the rest of the game. Aye. But the stages they have are pretty good. The North American one is a sawmill in the snow and it's a, like an operating sawmill. It's meant to be places like tough guys would be. Yes, exactly. So I assume that's sort of like Canada or kind of very northern borders of the, of the states, Minnesota or somewhere. The Europe one is in the Col- the Colosseum, in inverted commas, and the there's two lions on podiums that roar at you. The audience looks a bit like a creepypasta. <laughs> which I, I can't really explain any further than that, but if you look at the audience in the Colosseum level of uh, Tough Man contests, I think you'll know what I mean. Aye. <laughs> And the Asian one is set in the Imperial Palace, which has a brilliant sort of uh, Pyme from Kill Bill kind of long white bearded, presumably emperor looking over you from a kind of balcony seat. That's straight out of Mortal Kombat, man. Yeah, absolutely. And then the Central America one obviously takes place in a in a bar where there's a bar fight going on in the background of the uh, of the boxing match. Was Tough Man contest a global affair in real life, or was it just limited to like very southern states? I think it's very much an American thing, but I don't actually know. It might be that it is an international franchise event. Franchise, yeah. I actually do, I actually haven't done that part of the enough. I believe that. Eric Esch, Mr. Butterbean himself, was the world champion of Tough Man. Which does suggest. So they might have opened it up to other regions, but I definitely think it's maybe a Yank thing. Yeah. Well, it's like the World Series, isn't it? Aye. Technically anyone can join in, (laughs) but (laughs) but they just don't. But I so Leo for your for your boxing heads, if you if you're into your retro games and stuff. Is this a recommendation? I, I recommend it. Um, I think if you like twitchy, difficult arcade games or you are, yeah, if you're interested in boxing games, I think it's really, really worth a try. And I think even if not, it's got enough charm and personality and, and energy about it. It doesn't feel like a tired end of the console game. It's got a lot of kind of energy and pizzazz about it. Um, I, I would say it's 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 worth a punt, definitely. So I would recommend it. Nice one. You've you've kind of talked me into going back for an hour shot, seeing if I can at least win a fight, maybe. The uh, the manual is on archive.org, and it it did help me out quite a lot. <laughs> oh fuck it, I'll I'll read as well then. Fuck, why not? <laughs> that brings us on to our final for the evening. Now, Mister McCormick, why don't you tell us why you picked Romance and Saga Three? for myself. So when me and Mick had a flat together, um, we played a few games on the uh, Wii, uh, the virtual console. Um, One of these was a Game Boy game called Final Fantasy Legend. Final Fantasy Legend is an RPG on the Game Boy where you can kill God in one hit with a chainsaw, which to me is like the peak of Japanese RPGs. That's (laughs) like, you can't really get any better than that. And over the course of a few years since playing that, I found out that there's actually a whole series um, of these games um, masterminded by a guy called Akitoshi Kawazu, who we'll talk about, I'm sure, that have kind of ran in parallel to Final Fantasy. The the evil twin of Final Fantasy. <laughs> yeah, you probably could put it that way. Um, there's a kind of yin and yang thing going on. So Final Fantasy Legend, there's a, there's a, a lineage um, going from Final Fantasy to... Um, to Final Fantasy Legend on the, the Game Boy to the, the Saga series, which has continued for quite a long time. Um, and I was wondering which one to um, to give Mick, because I'd, I'd played a few of the 
Uh, I played a few of these games, um, but I thought the SNES era is probably the most uh, fitting for for Neddy. Ada, I was a considering. Romancing Saga 1, because um, it's a bit of a bridge between this game we know in a new generation, but it is a bit weird and obtuse, so I went for the probably most highly celebrated one um, in this series, which is called Romancing Saga 3. Aye. And, yep, how did you go on with it? Well, Mick, Leo, listeners, right, let me tell you nerds about a guy, right? (laughs) We love a guy. You've got your big names in video game design. Your Yuji Naka, your Yuji Hori, Miyamoto, Sakaguchi, right? I'm here to tell you that these men are cowards. <laughs> Babies even, right? They've got nothing on my man, Akitoshi Kawazu. A chain-smoking menace who has been fucking about with video game conventions since 1988, right? They put this guy in charge of Final Fantasy 2 and he went too far, right? He was too radical. Every <laughs> cunt hated it. They didn't get it, right? <laughs> they, they had to dial Final Fantasy back after it. They had to dilute it. And they had to punt, they had to punt Kawazu away to a forgotten realm, right? He knew he was right. Kawazu is the, the, the <laughs> personification of that Lemmy meme. was like, don't back down, double down. <laughs> <laughs> It does. It does. In every, subsequ- in every subsequent <laughs> game, he has doubled in. It doubles down further each time, right? He knew that he was right to be a menace, and he knew that his gaffers were bozos. Squaresoft quietly shipped him off to work on Game Boy titles, and that's where the first Saga game was born. One of the fucking weirdest JRPGs series of all time. No. Aye. This is a game where you, you have a party made up of humans, robots, and mutants, which all have completely different game mechanics in, uh, involved with them. Um, you're progressing up this tower, and each floor of the tower could be for a different game. Aye. Um, and also, it's got like this incredibly misanthropic story where just characters kind of die for absolutely no reason, and your, your characters don't mourn them. No, and your main characters are like really like there's a few times when you kill like an unarmed man there's a bit where like a monster thing has got like an orb you need and he's like i'm not gonna gay you and you basically say well we're just gonna take it by force then like it's no that like as you're saying you you're in control of a group of like mutants these weird cannibalistic monsters the monsters are my favorite thing in the first saga game you you kill things and you eat their meat to turn into a new creature which is appears quite random but there's a table you can work off of which me and McCormick obviously did made the most powerful monster um, and killed God but yeah we are on the sixth iteration of this series I was just going to say despite the title this is not a, a game of love and romance no I think the word romance has a kind of older meaning which is used to describe like you know like Arthurian myth or like Romance of the Three Kingdoms. I was going to say, is it, is it like, a, to like an, it's like an epic sort, of, yeah. an epic sort of tale, really. That that's what it means. I like a I a romance in a kind of Shakespearean sense. So quickly, because the plot of this isn't the the main event, right? But the plot of Romance in Saga Three is that on the world in which the game is set, every three hundred years there is a catastrophic solar eclipse that happens and kills every fucking newborn baby that was born that day, apart from one. 
And this is a baby that ends up having some kind of pure powerful fate. So you're told in the past that one of these babies became like this evil tyrant and another one of these babies became like a great hero. So you are thrown into this world short a few years after this eclipse thing has happened again and the world's kind of in turmoil you know there's a lot of stuff going on a lot of war and a lot of strife and this is this is what you're launched into you've got eight different playable protagonists that you can choose for and they they meet by chance at a bar so everybody has vaguely the same kind of opening but this is one of the things that drew me to it in the the old emulation days because I I did try to play this when I was a teenager and I thought it might be a wee bit like Secret of Mana 2 but it isn't at all but anyway um, all your characters are from quite different backgrounds and I basically you can choose them customise them a little bit I played as this guy called well the, the translation we played we're not playing like the the most recent shiny polished thing we are playing what people played in like the late 2000s when this first came out in english so it's full of like nonsense grammar and english people called it i god bless manasaur but this is possibly the worst translation I've ever played. <laughs> i think the manasaur translation's got its charms but and, and of him to translate a game in english when he doesn't seem to know english <laughs> <laughs> I, I have gotten my conclusion that people should probably play the the modern version rather than the manasaur one but um i i, I played as a character called harid in this um translation he is a warrior from a desert civilization he, as far as I can tell, is the only black character in this game, and it's got that stuff from like um, the Elder Scrolls, where it's just the the black guy has also got all this kind of Orientalist nonsense, like curved swords and like Arabian Nights type stuff. I still thought he was cool. He was like a mercenary and stuff like that. McCormick went for a character who I described to him as being a bit like Friedrich Engels because <laughs> he cares about poor people, but he's got like a rich da. I seem to figure out in my playthrough. What is his canonical name? Like Thomas or something? I think it's Julian. I literally called him Engels. It's been referred to as Engels, <laughs> which fits in quite well because you meet a lot of characters with Russian names like Mikhail and Leonid. So Aye. <laughs> I assume there's the sprinkled with references to the Soviet Union and communism. Your, your eight playable protagonists as well start off with like varying degrees of fighting ability as well, which I found quite interesting. Like, if you pick my guy, who's like a mercenary and is like hard as nails, the beginning of the game is quite easy because you already know how to fight. When you pick a lot of the other characters, you need to sort of build them up to scratch. They don't really know how to use weapons and stuff like that. Yeah, when I, in the intro to the game, like... Uh, in the first little mission you're doing where you're escorting the princess, Harid was in my party even though I hadn't picked him as the main character and he completely trounced uh, everyone else in terms of physical ability um, but then you get to the end of that section, he goes one way and you go the other, I was like oh fuck <laughs> he's, he's away, I might not meet him for the rest of the game this is stems from like the uh, one of the main differences between this and other role playing games which you, Final Fantasy games um, probably been the the, the best thing to compare them to is that from Final Fantasy 2 onwards Agatoshi Kawazu went for this system where you don't really choose a character class that you're stuck with for the rest of the game and that determines how your characters progress their abilities are based off of what they do so if you use a sword more often you'll learn more sword abilities you get stronger 
if you use magic more often, those abilities will improve. So your characters kind of start off as these blank slates, which you can mould into being your equivalent of like a, a white mage or a, a warrior or whatever, just based on what, what gear you give them. Aye. He described it as interviews as like nature versus nurture, whereas like he thought that a person isn't born a wizard or born a fighter or born a particular role. It's based on what they do in life. And he's tried to model that in his games, which is quite interesting and very, very unusual for, for this genre. Well, it was, but no fucking gaming's caught up with him. Because describing how leveling up your abilities works in Romance and Saga 3, or Final Fantasy 2 for that matter, people might go, ah, that sounds a bit like Skyrim, and it fucking is. Yeah, it's very much like Skyrim, and this does a few things. A lot of things that are very ahead of their time, but probably would have been pretty baffling uh, while you're playing this game. Like, scaling, level scaling of enemies as well. Like, you can do things in pretty much any order you want, but the enemies will get stronger with you. So there's not really, like, one area full of strong monsters and one area full of weak monsters. It's just wherever you go, the game sort of adapts to you as well. The, The bosses are fixed, because I definitely had it where... I breezed through a dungeon and I got to a boss and then I had to go, oh no, right, I'm away. I can't do this. <laughs> Another feature of the combat system that I really quite like is that the, um, there are these moments during battle where your character will do this thing called spark, which is where they get a wee idea, a light bulb appears above their head and they will just come up with a new technique and it's set up so that this will happen during boss fights and it kind of turns the tide of battle quite a lot of the time so I, I had this later in my notes but it's another thing that leads to this game having quite unique experiences you know you could have a, a million different stories between you and your pals about how you defeated a, a specific boss because you might be like oh Ellen my character with the axe learned this really powerful new technique that you know let her cut heads open better or something I uh, it's like something that might happen in an episode of Dragon Ball Z or something it's like yeah. I'm struggling against this this boss until I discovered this new power within me <laughs> that allowed me to defeat them but none of this stuff is scripted like it's just a, a consequence of these systems that are going on like it's all very dynamic and this is the whole game so Romance and Saga 3 is almost like overwhelming in its scope in terms of what you had in the Super Nintendo at the time Kawazu, this fucking madman, as I say, was basically trying to make an Elder Scrolls game on the SNES, right? <laughs> as a result of this, when you, you kick off the game, the world, I think, can feel quite empty, quite barren. There's a lot of NPCs, they don't say much, a lot of the towns feel quite samey. You don't really know what to do, but if you were dropped into a Final Fantasy game without knowing what to do... Uh, this is exactly how it would feel really yeah so you're not getting your hand held which is fairly fucking revolutionary for a a jrpg of this era like to just let you go off the rails completely so like a tabletop role-playing game you just feel like another person kicking about in this world having adventures you at no point really feel like the most important person in the world like as i say there is a a magic baby born every 300 years you are not that you are a guy kicking about while that's happening (laughs) elsewhere yeah once you get through the the kind of intro chapter which is maybe slightly different for each character you you expect that your 
this is where your mission continues and you, you'll know exactly what you've got to do next and the king might tell you do this or that but you just kind of you get to a point it's like right what now <laughs> the world is your oyster and these games the romance and saga series in particular ran in parallel with final fantasy in terms of timeline so like the first romance and saga came out around about the same time as final fantasy 4 second to five third one was six you can see this in the graphical styles they look very much like their kind of counterpart final fantasy games i think this one maybe reuses some assets for six if i'm not mistaken like graphics and sounds and things well but, it uses the entire sound effect library for really? chrono trigger oh really all, all the the wee twinkles when you use magic and stuff the menu noises and stuff are lifted entirely from chrono trigger <laughs> so um yeah you'll be very familiar with that but i think this also this familiarity can throw you for a loop because it looks like you're playing Final Fantasy VI, but in terms of all the stuff that's underneath it, you really are new. No. This is where the magic of the game really comes into it, right? You might just say, well, there's no point to this. I don't know what I'm doing. I've got no aim here. But this is... The game becomes about what you want it to be about. You can do this whole gameplay mode, the whole mini game thing. It takes hours where you become the best merchant in the world. You go about and you buy commodities from one area, sell them to another, you buy shops, you buy property and stuff like that. I had no fucking interest in doing this at all. McCormick, however, played through the whole thing, so you, <laughs> after that, have got a different fucking game experience for me there. So, <laughs> a weird thing happened where I accepted this quest and I, I didn't really know what I was doing, but what you find out is that a lot of the quest givers for other quests, when you're doing the business minigame, you can't talk to them about anything else. You can only talk to them about business. You so can go back qu- to the guy that gives you the business minigame quest and say, I don't want to do this anymore. I did that almost immediately. I found myself quite enjoying the business game in the end, actually. It was one of those uh, idle clicker games once you get your head around it. Um, the one thing I didn't like was that you your company had millions and millions of gold and yet I couldn't afford a fucking uh, ship to another <laughs> tune. So I wanted to be able to embezzle money for the company, but it didn't allow you to. But the, the reason I was stuck in that game more so than the fact that I was really enjoying it was that there's other quests in the game that don't start while you're in that one, like that that one with the rat. Um, king, the NPC that gives you that, if you try to talk to him while you're in this business game, he starts talking to you about fucking stocks and shares. Yeah, um, we need so, more lumber in the region. Yeah, so everyone, <laughs> so everyone I spoke to just wanted to talk about fucking capitalism. But yeah, that it just kind of goes to show that, that you two folk playing this can have a completely different experience. It's so open ended. Like you might the the quests and some of them are quite difficult and obtuse to like unlock. There's those weird fucking requirements behind them hidden requirements and stuff the yes. translation doesn't help but when you do find one it just it feels like you've stumbled across something unique depending on what character you play as as well there is also a town management simulation to this where you have to keep people happy and fed and things like that <laughs> there is a war game a strategy game built into this as well depending on who you play as so i was gonna say i had heard that there was a there was like a strategy thing for one of the characters so there are entire sort of parts of the not just like story elements, but like whole bits of game that are unique to your different yeah, starting characters. Definitely, I. If you play as Mikhail, you get the the town management and a lot of the war games. Um, the guy I went, Harid, you can lead armies for money sometimes, but it's not like the crux of the game. 
but yeah, like what once felt empty when you start this starts to feel broad, like alive with possibilities. You get into this rhythm of you explore a new place, uh, you talk to NPCs because they say, oh, there's a neighbouring town called what's its fuck through the mountain pass then when you go onto the world map you can go to that place because you know know about it so yeah you talk to everybody and this is how you unlock more places more quests more stuff today my personal thing that i like then was going out and finding the weirdest cunts to join my party i was just so... about to butt in here mick and say uh, this is all very interesting in terms of game modes and uh, combat and sound effects, but what I'm really here for, if you're talking about a weird JRPG, is party members. I I didn't manage to find the lobster guy. There's a buff lobster. He's called yeah, Boston. Who, I wanted to yeah, know about Boston. The lobster. Yeah, I, I I really wanted Boston, but I think he's late game. I got an elephant. I got a snowman, and I got a guy. My my favorite is a guy called Fat Robin. So <laughs> you you get a tune that's been sort of terrorised by a gang, right? They are, like, shaking people down and, you know, selling smack at the port and things like that. And this hero, a guy in a black-clad mask and a cape with a rapier, jumps down when you find the gang at certain points in the tune. He's called Robin, and he sort of valiantly defeats them and chases them off. Except one of the times you go, instead of Robin, you get... It's just the exact same thing happens, except the guy's called Fat Robin, and it's it's just Robin, but overweight, and he, he, he vanquishes the baddies and then gets stuck in a barrel, because his belly can't fit through it. <laughs> is he canonically a different character, or is it just like something's yeah. happened to Robin? I, I, I think... Kind fighting duo. Yeah. I, well, I, the Mana Sword translation kind of left it open to interpretation of whether Fat Robin was just like a particularly like skillful fanboy or whatever. I didn't realise they were supposed to be a duo, but um, at the end of that whole bit, you can recruit uh, either one of them. So obviously, I get Fat Robin, <laughs> and he's he's the exact same as Robin. He plays the same, except that the sprites are a, a fat version of him. It's the clear choice. Yeah, <laughs> I thought this was incredible, and more games should do it. My other favourite party member was Snowman, right? And I'm going to tell you a tale about this game, which, strap yourselves in, right? So, as I said, I've been going around collecting all the silly guys, right? Because that's what I like doing, that gives me a bit of fun. So there's a bit, again, throwing into how getting some of these quests are quite obtuse, as Mick was saying. If you stare at the northern lights, right, when you're at when you're in the north part of the map. A cosmic, you would figure that out. <laughs> a cosmic anomaly happens and it transports you to a village of snowmen. And while you're exploring the village and the dungeon next to it, you can find this magical ice that never melts and you can get to one of the snowmen and then he can leave the village because that means that he can like walk about in areas where he would usually melt. So I'm kicking about with a snowman. He's like my magic user. He knows all these cool ice spells. And like kicking about having adventures, having a time of our lives, me and a snowman with my other guys, Fat Robin and that. Just flying through this game, big smile on my face. Eventually, I get to a fire temple, right? And at the end of this, I'd reach this thing called an abyss gate. And this ties into this 300 years overarching main plot thing which I had not really dabbled in at all because the game 
doesn't show you where to find it. You just happen upon it while you're doing other things. Aye. So it's like, do you want to try and close the abyss gate? And I'm like, aye, fuck it. We're we're a team of weird heroes. We're going to go for it. I fought this really hard demon guy. I think he was called Onus or Aonus or something. Not Anus. <laughs> During this fight, my party all get wiped out. Apart for the snowman, because the never melt ice makes him invulnerable to fire magic. But then something happens when my party are all dead. Apart for the snowman, it's that on the next turn, I don't get to choose an option. The snowman just walks forward and he uses this never melt ice as an item. And then this powerful ice spell triggers off. It kills this demon thing. And the next thing I know, my party is transported outside the fire temple and it's playing sad music. And when I go into my menu, the snowman is just gone. Oh no. He has fully sacrificed himself. No dialogue or nothing, right? That tells me that this is what's happened. I just know that he's sacrificed himself through working it out, through, you know, what's happened in front of me. This is great storytelling that is only going to happen to a very small handful of players who are going to do these events in that specific order and tick off these specific parameters to trigger this happening. It does immediately catapult Snowman into legendary status of memorable <laughs> party members, though. I could have reloaded my game to before that boss, but I didn't. I saved it because I wanted Snowman's sacrifice to have meant something. Exactly. You know? <laughs> That's that, yeah. And that's kind of the reason this is like a an anti Final Fantasy in a way, because you compare that to the the most tragic moment in Final Fantasy VII, Eris dying. That's going to happen to everyone, and no matter what you do, as much as much as people uh, pretended that you could bring her back, there's no getting around that. Whereas yeah. for this this amazing story arc, all just happened because of all these dynamic systems interacting with each other in at a certain point of time this happened that it just maybe wouldn't happen for other players if you'd fought that boss uh, before you got the snowman or if you hadn't even defeated when you're fighting the boss it wouldn't yeah. have happened so that's kind of what makes this game pretty special it's, think, it's happening to a small percentage of players i sorry mick um, i think where this comes from and if you know a wee bit about the sort of history of um rpgs and how they came to japan you had all these western um computer games that were trying to be Dungeons and Dragons. They were all the folk uh, were playing Dungeons and Dragons with a pen and paper in the seventies and eighties, and they had access to these new computers and thought, "I want to make computer Dungeons and Dragons." And they made games like Ultima and Wizardry and stuff like that, and various games that you know focused on different bits of the the Dungeons and Dragons experience. These the early ones were mostly what you would call dungeon crawlers. Wizardry is massive in Japan Aye. at at this point and weirdly going forward. In, in the West, I think when they're making these games and they went on to make things like your Skyrims and your your Fallouts and your Builders Gates and all that, they were always looking back to Dungeons and Dragons and games of Dungeons and Dragons they played and other pen and paper RPGs and thinking, how can we take inspiration for that and turn it into a computer game? Whereas in Japan, D&D never really took off. Like it wasn't, it was nowhere near as popular as it is in the West, but Wizardry and Ultima were popular. So when folks started making JRPGs, they were kind of taking out influence for Ultima and Wizardry, but also just mere other video games as opposed to actually going back to the source material. So you ended up with this quite a different thing where JRPGs are mere linear, mere story driven, mere character driven, and they don't have some of the open endedness um, that 
Japanese role-playing games day. But our hero of the hour here, Akitoshi Kawazu, he grew up playing Dungeons and Dragons uh, and board games. He loved board games and he, he wanted to be a board game designer. He designed board games at Isus before he um, actually became a game developer. So he is one of the few, if not the only, Japanese RPG developer of this time that that was taking on that kind of influence and Aye. he wanted to make something that was very open-ended, very system-driven. And you can just imagine like Haranobu Sakaguchi coming up to him when he's making Final Fantasy do, like pure exasperated, like <laughs> what are you doing? You, you can't you can't do this. You, like, you can't make this game where there's fucking your character classes can be completely wild out of sync with each other and can hit the other player and it makes you stronger and you can Aye. super super level past it and he's just like sitting with his feet up on the table smoking fags going no i'm gonna do it i'm gonna do it anyway kawazu on his 50th cigarette of the day going fucking watch me you sit down <laughs> me man i'm fucking doing this <laughs> but i this is a thorough recommendation for me if you are an rpg sicko if you've already made your way through a lot of the snes snes library You've, you've got to give this one a bash if you haven't. It's new on PS4, Switch, Steam, I think, a bunch of other stuff as a remaster. I think I think that would be the version to go for. Looks beautiful. I watched the trailer for it. Um, it looks amazing. On the, on the PS4 stuff. A lot of the time, those um, pixel remasters of the old 16-bit JRPGs look look horrible. For the, the old Final Fantasy games have gone through a series of really disgusting, ugly remakes but the the ranting saga 3 one actually looks gorgeous yeah i I completely agree like i think they've used a lot more of a light touch and when they're remastering these games yeah not adding so many bells and whistles not adding a horrendous font Um, and of course you you have a translation which uh, actually kind of makes sense if you play (laughs) the one on steam aye so if you want something that looks like final fantasy 6 but feels like fucking baldur's gate well not the combat but the the world then this is a game for you. I loved it. I am looking forward to playing more of it. Um, as I say, I got really swept up in this business mini game and didn't get to do much else. Although I did just have Macho Man Randy Savage join my party. I was going to. I was. I was going to ask about the. Is is he? Is that Ward? The it's guy. Got wood in my transition. Well, that makes sense because I think I think the translation I'm looking at is wrong. But he looks a bit like JoJo's Bizarre Al Yankovic. <laughs> yeah. I am. Um, you get. He's a hunter from like an ice village. Yeah, I, I pallied cool. about with him for a wee bit, but I ended up trapping him because he can get like elephants and that. I was having <laughs> one as human I, jabroni with me. I think I'm gonna have to pick this up. I think you've you've sold it to me because I, I didn't have a chance to give it a go. So I think I will. There's a whole rabbit hole to fall down with these games as well because they, they were very popular in Japan, um, but never quite made to the West. There's a few of them um, that get released on the, the PS1, PS2 as well. Saga Frontier was the first one to come out in Europe, I think. Saga Frontier, I think that was quite popular as well. So yeah, there's a whole a whole world to explore. Um, I think some more accessible than others. I don't know if this one... This one's probably a good introduction to the series. There's a wee barrier at the entry, and the combat system can be a wee bit to get your heat wrapped in. But just honestly... Like, Submit to Kawazu, like come into his world, man. Smoke ten packs of fags and play this. Like um, you, you'll no regret it. <laughs> that will bring us on to our sort of dishing out games for next time. So, Leo, 
you tell us what Andy Mack has in store for our special guest next time, Mr. Johnny Branchfield? Yes, Andy has managed to secrete uh, a note that has been delivered to me by Carrier Pigeon. <laughs> it just arrived, um, and I, I have unraveled it, and it tells me that he has given Johnny Lilac Wars, a.k.a. Star Fox 64, for any American listeners, for the Nintendo Ultra 64. Beautiful. I said it was always going to be six hours long. <laughs> we've been searching high and low for one of our pals that hasn't played it. Because we've been choking to talk about it for years. <laughs> Mr McCormick, what have you got for Andy Mac? I will be giving Andy Mac uh, another Cynosis game, which you know we're all very fond of, and also a Games Master classic. Uh, this is Wiz and Liz on the Mech Drive. Well, for yourself, Mick, I'm going to keep it Mega Drive, and I am going to give you a game which I think is slept on a little bit. It's a movie tie-in, so you might not think it would be that brilliant, but um, True Lies, I think, plays a wee bit like if Hotline Miami was on the Sega, so <laughs> let's see how you got on with that. I'm very intrigued to see how this gets adapted to the Sega Mega Drive. <laughs> For myself, Johnny Branchfield has kindly picked another ripper of a JRPG. It's Tales of Fantasia, specifically the GBA remaster, which was released in English. So I'm going to get my teeth sunk into that for next time. Nice one. Aye, well, Leo... Thank you very much for subbing in at the last minute, man. That was that was awful good to you, and I think this episode will be a wee cracker. Oh, thanks for having me. It's always a pleasure. Always good to talk butterbean with an old pal. <laughs> All that's left to say for me is up the workers. Hardcore to the mega. You have a nice poster of Shadow the Hedgehog on your wall. I heard the brother speak. <laughs> <laughs> See you later.